Hello and welcome to episode number 28 of Off The Block Swimming Podcast. Thank you all for downloading our show today. I'm your host, Robbie Cox. Now, what a week it has been on the podcast so far. We've had Patria Thomas, Alex Graham, Mina Atherton, and Nick Sloman on the show. And we are finishing the week with a bang and with an absolute legend of Australian swimming in Mr. Daniel Kowalski. Had the privilege of speaking with Daniel a few weeks ago and had an absolute blast discussing his introduction into swimming, his amazing swimming career, the obstacles he managed to overcome, and what kept him motivated to continue his career in the face of adversities. So get your pen and paper out and get ready to take some notes on some brilliant advice given by a man who does not know the words, give up. Episode number 28 with Daniel Kowalski starts now. Away they go. No problems with the start. There is two 100s in the second in it. Gary Hall Jr., the extrovert, and Ian Thorpe battling it out down the pool. Thorpe is starting to go away from him. Joining us today on the show is an absolute legend of our sport in our country. He is a two-time Olympian earning medals from both Atlanta and the Sydney Games. He's a world championship medalist as well as being one of the most popular swimmers in our country's history. He is known for his never-give-up attitude and the ability to overcome any obstacles. It is a massive welcome to Off The Block Swing podcast, Mr. Daniel Kowalski. Dan, how you going, mate? I'm great. Very excited to, to be here. I've um been following the the podcast and the swimmers you've had on so i'm, I'm very honored to be part of of a, an illustrious crew so far thank you very much mate I, I do have to pinch myself sometimes that um you know i'm just sitting out here in, in western sydney in, in my garage and I, i'm not really anyone specifically as a name myself but I, you know i get to talk to you guys and and people that i grew up you know idolizing and yeah, you know, i have to sort of pinch myself sometimes but thank you very much for coming on the show and thank you for for showing interest in the show and listening to past ones it's that's very humbling mate now obviously i'm i'm in sydney whereabouts have we caught you today yeah i'm in in sydney too uh lockdown so depending on where you play this i dare say that um we'll still be locked down but uh listen i think one of the the positives from from this current situation is is exactly what you're doing is is running a podcast and providing a platform for established and, and up and coming swimmers to to tell their stories and uh, storytelling telling is really powerful it's one of my favorite things so you know try to see a silver lining in, in what we're currently living through absolutely now i guess we're slowly getting back to normal i mean yeah, COVID-19 restrictions are slowly lifting. I think we're at stage one at the moment, which is great to see. At least we know we're moving forward. I know speaking with a lot of the Aussie athletes, pardon me, at the moment on the podcast, you know, some are either getting back into training, um, you know, already or some are excited about getting into it. What about yourself, mate? Like, how, how have you been affected by this? Have, have you been affected personally or, or professionally? I'm, I'm a creature of habit and routine, so having that element taken away from me, it was quite a 
an adjustment. Mm. Um, and to be honest with you, I still, I still struggle in the sense of not a day goes by when I'm just pining for this to be over. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then professionally, um, you know, I, I work at the Australian Olympic Committee, um, was quite involved in the organisational aspects for the Tokyo Olympic Games. Mm-hmm. Uh, so professionally, that's obviously had an impact on on my work, but more than anything, it's the impact that it's having on the athletes and the coaches and the support staff who should be in the final couple of months of preparation um, whereas for our swimmers, you know, soon would have been heading into taper uh, for trials. So I think in, in the grand scheme of things, you know, I've been very fortunate in what has been a very trying time. Hey, you touch on Tokyo Olympics there, and, and I want to sort of unpack that a little bit more, obviously postponed to 2021, about a month or so ago. Firstly, you know, from an athlete's perspective, and, and uh, you know, back in the day, you, you were one of the best, mate. Talk to me about, you know, how you think you would have handled you know, building up and feeling really strong in the water and all of a sudden having the goalposts move. You know, give us an insight into athletes' minds. Oh, man, I would have been in the fetal position in 96 (laughs) because, like, I was primed and and ready to go, you know, physically, mentally, not so much. That's a a whole other story. But uh, I really, yeah, I really would have felt that um, and... Don't know if I would have been strong enough to hold together for another year. Whereas Sydney, totally different story because the extra year may have prepared me from a physical point of view with my shoulders. But at the end of the day, I mean, like, you know, Kieran was going for three, Grant was gunning for Kieran, and Ian was was doing what Ian does. And so... I was only ever going to be on the outskirts of a relay. Mm. So maybe in, in hindsight, the, the that extra year would not have been good. But in, in both cases, I just, I wouldn't, I, I would not have coped. And I, it's hats off to the, these athletes and, and the coaches and their families and everyone around them for just the resilience and the resolve that they're all demonstrating at the moment is just unbelievable. Now, from a organization point of view, talk to us about, you know, what goes into, you know, pushing Olympics back a year. Obviously, you know, I'm this Joe Blow sitting on the lounge that goes, oh, yeah, just put it back a year. That can't be hard. What, what, you know, organizational, you know, stuff went into, obviously, there's, you know, infrastructure and buildings and, and sponsorships and all that sort of stuff. Was it a massive deal to try and push the Olympics back a year? Yeah, obviously I'm not across the the exact detail, but for example, I do know that um, the side of the Olympic and Paralympic Village, um, were, there are 11 contractors involved in the build of that, and that was supposed to hand over on 1 January to tenants to move in. So obviously um, that is not going to happen. Mm. So having to negotiate all that would have been quite a deal and, and then it's you know and we saw it with FINA in the world championships the IOC negotiating with one with international federations to ensure that they could keep the space free of when the games are being proposed to be moved to um and then there's already you know hotel bookings and it, it just goes on yeah, and on and yeah. on um and you know I started at the AOC in August 2018 not long after the Pampax and I remember you know getting straight into it and 
you know, the amount of organising going on for the Tokyo Olympics then and also the 2022 Beijing Winter Olympics and, you know, the Pyeongchang Winter Olympics had only just finished six months prior and already these things are happening. I mean, we're already having meetings around Paris in 2024. So it, it's, 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 it's never ending, you know, and um, it, the fact that they've been able to turn it around so quickly is it says a lot for the passion in which um, the Japanese are approaching these games. Absolutely. Now, mate, I think it's enough Corona talk for one day and I, I, I want to get stuck into your amazing career. And I guess, you know, I can't really talk about your career without, you know, going back to you as a young fella to start with and, and getting into it. What are your earliest memories in the pool and, and what drew you towards swimming? Um, my sister and I, um, we grew up in Southeast Asia and I moved um, with my family to Australia when I was about five and a half. Um, and very quickly, we saw that um, swimming was very much a, a large part of, of the culture down here. And, and my parents thought that it would be a good idea um, if my sister went and tried to um, try out for the local swimming club. And she went down there and I sort of followed and it was my introduction to the sport outside of just, you know, mucking around with my parents mm. primarily started because it was an opportunity for us to, to meet people really. Mate, was it always swimming for you growing up? I mean, were there any other sports that you, you got into as a young kid, especially once you moved to Australia? Was it footy? Was it AFL? Was it, was there anything else? Yeah, my parents were great in encouraging me to, to try all different kinds of sports um, so I did that, you know, I tried the cricket and tennis thing um, in the school, some, the summer school terms, and then um, AFL growing up in Adelaide and then uh, soccer um, in the winter sports. You know, I, I harboured this desire. I grew up um, very much in the Michael Jordan era, I guess you could say, mm -hmm. and was enamoured with um, Michael Jordan and, and the Bulls and even as my swimming career took off I always wanted to be a point guard on, on, a, on a successful basketball team I wanted to be like Grant Kenny and Trevor Hendy and, and Iron Man so I, I, I wanted to do all these things but I always reverted back to the pool because that was what I was most decent at um, it's where my friends were I loved the structure and routine of it the mixture of being an individual and a, a team sport so yeah, I just I kept on going back, but was grateful to have tried those other sports because, you know, like I've, I've heard a few on your podcast say, like, typical swimmer can't do anything on land, but just feel very comfortable in, in the water. Yeah, mate, absolutely. Now, you mentioned there that the Michael Jordan uh, documentary. Have you been watching it on Netflix? Have you been keeping up with it? Of course, absolutely glued. Um, you know, it, it, it's brought back a lot of memories just in terms I can remember – um, certain things because obviously back then there was no internet so I was always getting results in the paper the next day and I particularly remember that bad boy year and then not being able to get over the Detroit Pistons mm. and it's been really cool to to see it back and just seeing the impact that one guy had on just world sport and a global sport and then you know that whole dream team scenario 1992 was 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 epic as well. So I've, I've loved watching, you know, that last dance. It's been incredible. 
it's funny talking to people about that and everyone sort of takes away different, you know, different things and different quotes and, and all that sort of stuff. And I think for me, one of the ones was, you know, don't put a saddle on a Mustang when, you know, referring to Dennis Rodman at the Pistons when you know, yeah. he was getting too aggressive and the assistant coach was like, oh, Coach Daly, mate, I, I think we need to brain him back. He's like, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> you just let him, you let him do his thing. So uh, I, I think there's been a lot of um, take-homes from that and I guess – Ultimately, the main one that I think everyone sees is not only was Michael Jordan obviously just a tremendous basketball player, but he was just the ultimate competitor. And it sort of leads me, I did an interview with Bob Bowman the other day, um, which was you know brilliant for me to be able to sit there and, and talk to Michael Phelps' coach. But he's saying the same thing, that he's sitting there watching this, but he's, he's actually you know hearing Michael, his own Michael, in terms of just how competitive he was. And I, I think that's interesting to take away too. Yeah, I think, you know, when the day comes and if you, you know, science permits it um, to take something from these, I, I, you know, I see the, the GOAT emoji and the GOAT acronym and the word legend that gets thrown around mm. like every second person these days. <laughs> but you look at a Michael Jordan, you look at a Michael Phelps and, you know, they are, are GOATs and I'd be so curious to just, to know of some sort of study into their mind or into something that this, what was that one thing that made them the incredible athletes and people that, that they were. Hey, what did you enjoy most about training as a youngster? Now we'll get to it in a second. You know, obviously, you, you know, you turned into a just a tremendous middle distance and distance swimmer. So no doubt the training uh, started to pick up and, and probably got less enjoyable as you got older, but Talk to me about when you were younger, what did you enjoy most about it? Was was it hanging around your teammates? Was it pushing yourself in training and, you know, being competitive with them, with them or was it competition? It was a mixture of all of those. Um, the, the one thing very early on was definitely my, my squad mates. So um, I swam primarily with um, a club called James Aquatic under David James in, in Adelaide. Um, we had those... Three of us went on to make the 96 and 2000 Olympics with Sarah Ryan and Ryan Mitchell. And along with a few others, we're all members of the same surf club. And so we're, it was a really close, tight-knit group. Um, and so I loved that aspect. But then I just loved the, the, the daily challenge and I loved, um, you know, seeing myself improve from month to month and, you know, writing in my logbook and, cutting up swimming magazines and sticking them on my logbook and just all those kinds of innocent things that um, really drew me to the finer nuances of the sport and, and what I loved. And so all those, all those three things combined um, is, you know, why I fell in love and, and, and still very much love the sport. You were very much still a teenager in 1992 when you, you tried to make your first Olympic team for Barcelona. I think you were still about 16 or 17. I mean, it's a huge thing for a young man to, to try and achieve, but clearly you've been doing you know so much work in the pool that you know this was an option to you and this was very viable. Talk to me about you know some of the training you did back then, say between 14 years and 16 up until Olympic trials. I mean, were you doing just massive volume of, of kilometres each week? No, not at all. Um, you know, my my coach at the time, Dave, David James, was heavily influenced by some of the work that Dave Salo was doing out of the US. Um, you know, we were doing a lot of the heart rate sets um, that 
Mr. Carew would run with Kieran um, based off the work of Bob Trafine. So it was like 4100s on 140, you know, that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a balance, you know, Dave Salo, from what I remember, was bring my coach would bring a lot of the speed elements in and then, you know, the work that Mr. Carew was doing and was passing on through through the various camps and conferences that my coach would, would attend. So combining the two of them. So it was never really any more than 55, 60K a week. Um, but I remember there was a lot of variety. Like I, I still to this day have never broken 50 for – uh, 40 for a 50 breaststroke <laughs> yeah. um e- even with multiple dolphin kicks but um there was a lot of im work as well so that sort of kept me me fresh mentally um but it was you know it was just a grind that was a fun grind and it was a lot of at pace work and um other than 400s i don't really remember doing a lot of longer stuff mm. You mentioned they're the 41s and 140. Like, what, what are some of the toughest sets you've done? It's, I mean, we can fast forward to, you know, to you at, at your peak as well. What, what are some of the toughest sets that you look back and you're like, wow, I, I can't believe I actually not only did that, but did that really well? Yeah. Um, being a guinea pig for Dennis Cottrell uh, when I moved up to Miami was, was incredible because he – he got me to realize, you know, there were no limitations and I can still remember – 12 400s long course on, on 420, um, held them all under 405. Wow. You know, you talk about being in the zone. I was in the absolute zone. I reckon, you know, if they gave medals for, for training, I'd have a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I I just I love the um, the occasion of training. So that one definitely sticks out in, in my mind. It was, it was the toughest probably physically and, and mentally um, I've ever done been at attacking a session and, and there were lots like that and, and that was one of the things I loved when I went back to to, to Dennis and, and and training alongside Grant when he was in his prime like he was just doing incredible sets and it was just so much fun well, I'm glad so you, much fun to watch I'm glad you brought that up we'll, we'll get to that a little bit later on in the podcast because I'm, I'm fascinated about sort of you two just going head to head in training and pushing each other but we'll, we'll stick with the with the timeline for now 1993 mate was a bit of a breakout year for you on the Australian team I think you made the Pan Packs and finished second in the in the 1500 the eight and the four um, you also competed in your first ever world short course champs in spain that was the first time they'd, they'd ever had that firstly you know mm. talk to me about making your first senior team after all the hard work you'd done uh, must have been a pretty you know fulfilling feeling being a part of the team and and what was your first trip like on the pampax team yeah well I, I, it's okay i need to sort of go back to post olympic trials and, and coming third um behind kieran and glenn um and, you know, I was, you know, a very proud South Australian kid swimming up and down the pool there. But I recognised that I, in order to achieve, you know, the, the goals and dreams that I had, that I really wanted to to take it up a, a notch. And, you know, I asked my parents, you know, can we move to, to Queensland and can I train under Dennis Cottrell? I'd been on a training camp with him um, in Colorado Springs in September of 92. And I just really clicked with him. And, you know, there's a lot of chatter. He's a sprint coach. He obviously was a coach Andrew Bowden to be the first Australian under 50 seconds. So, you know, as a distance swimmer, why would I go there? And in the end, my parents, you know, agreed. And we, we moved up shop and moved to the Gold Coast. And 
you know, that was in the November of 92. And then mm. by March 93, I'd qualified for packs and, um, going into that team was very, very, sur- <laughs> very surreal because, you know, even at Olympic trials in 92, even though I, I made the podium, I was still walking around with my autograph book in my backpack, getting autographs and, I still had posters of the Uncle Toby's Dolphins on my wall um, in my home in the Gold Coast when making the Pampak team. So it was it was very surreal. It was very intimidating. Um, <clears throat> and I, even though I pinched myself that I was there, I still never felt like I belonged to be there mm. or deserved to be there. And so being on a pool deck with, you know, I can remember Janet Evans, Jeff Rouse in particular, you know, Olympic champions from 92, um, going on to Olympics, you know, and it was just, it was incredible, mm. absolutely incredible. And, um, yeah, it's surreal. All of those, all those words and descriptors <laughs> to describe how incredible something is, yeah. that's, that's what I would use. It's funny you mentioned there, mate, feeling like you don't belong. I often feel like that on the podcast. Here talking to you guys, like I often think, I don't think I really should be the one interviewing Daniel Kowalski today. But uh, So I definitely get that feeling. Mate, talk to me about being a pioneer in, in some ways and being um, involved in the first ever world short course champs. I mean, you went on, you won gold in the 400 and the 1500. How was that received at the time? And, and obviously, you know, a big moment for you. Yeah, my my most favourite trip that um that I ever did. Uh, it was a very small team that that went away. I think it was like 12, 12 of us. Um, and the one of the actual best things about that um that whole campaign was we were in Canberra the morning that they Sydney were awarded the two thousand Olympics on a training camp. Yeah. And that being in the hall at the AAS and that auditorium when they announced it was incredible. We went and had to go to a massive training session after that. It was one of the best sets I've ever done. Um, but that whole campaign was a lot of fun. We get to to Majorca and you know the pool was still being built when we were there. <laughs> you know, I'd seen photos of it, but they were all photos of, in summer and we were there in winter and um the food was questionable, um, but we just made it, we made it work, you know. Like it was, we had you know, amazing day trips because we were there a long time, and then um, it was the start of the emergence of the Chinese women, and we were all just in awe of the size of Jingyi Li, and I think her name was Guo Hong Dai or something. They were just built women like we've never seen before, and obviously we've seen the subsequent fallout from that. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> It was also, I remember in the marshalling room before the heat of a 400 freestyle and Jörg Hoffman uh, was in my heat, the the German who won um, a bronze, I guess, in Barcelona and was a world champion in 91 in front of Kieran in Perth. And he sat on my lap in the marshalling room mm. and almost broke my legs. <laughs> um, and, you know, that rattled me in the heat and it taught me a massive lesson about, you know, mind games in in mm. the um in the marshalling room but yeah i um i swam i swam really well um I, the, the one thing i remember is that the tees on the bottom of the pool it was a really deep pool kept on moving so you could never judge where you were on the turn yeah um but you know i just remember little things um but that was really cool like i said my farm my most enjoyable team and my most um fun team to to have been a part of 
Mate, I, I can't go past old mate coming and sitting on your lap. What what, what was he doing? Could he not find a seat? Why was he doing that? Well, so there was myself and Mal Allen in the marshing area, and then Mal was in the heat before me. And so I guess he didn't know who was who um, because we didn't have our name on our caps at yep, that meet. Yep. Um, and so when Mal went out to the heat before, um, he obviously realized, okay, that was me. And so we was we were sitting on the chairs and then, so he sort of partially went to sit on his chair, but also on mine. <laughs> and then, and then I was like, oh, this guy's like six foot six, built like, built like a brick dunny and he's yeah. trying to crush my legs or something. <laughs> and then, yeah, I was, I was seriously rattled. I actually forgot how many laps I had done. I didn't know um, where I was at in, in terms of my laps in, in that 400 heat. It was, I was so rattled. What'd you do? You just kept going till you hear the bell? There wasn't a bell from what I remember. Okay. I had to wait. I had. I just. I, I knew I was either two or four to go, and so I, I can't remember who the swimmer was, but I, they they touched before me. I think I ended up in lane six or lane two or something. <laughs> Mate, one thing I marvelled at, you know, whilst doing my research on you, is, you know, firstly how bloody unlucky you were with illness and injury, but secondly, you know, how you always managed to overcome those adversities. And, and I want to take you to nineteen ninety four and the Com Games trials and you contract a, a really bad viral infection not long before the Aussie champs there. And in a moment, you know, when most people would be throwing their hands up and saying, why me? You stuck to your guns, backed yourself, and you went on to not only beat Kieran in the four and the 15, but, you know, you win in the process. And I think you went under the 15-minute barrier there, which is huge. I mean, talk to me about your recollection of, of that meet and that story. Yeah, I got diagnosed with viral meningitis about six weeks before um and then needless to say i was very anxious um about how that recovery would would play out because the commonwealth games were were always going to be really special because they were being held in my dad's family's hometown Mm -hmm. where my dad grew up so um whilst there was no pressure on my family for me to make it i i really wanted to make it um and so you know, the, the, the few weeks leading into that, you know, Dennis and he was, you know, continually on about just, you know, you've got to back the work that you do, you've done, trust me, you've done incredible work, you're, you're going to be fine. And so it was the first time that I really realised the power of the mind. Um, and I went into that, it was the first time I ever shaved my back as well. <laughs> I never shaved, I'd only ever shaved my legs and my chest and I shaved my back and yeah. I felt incredible. Um, it was it was probably the best I ever felt in, in the water. Um, it was also smooth and effortless. And, yeah, I, I swam out of my skin. I, I did massive PBs, I think, 13 seconds in, in the 1500. And, like you said, broke 15 man, minutes for the first time and then broke 350 for the 400 for the first time. So it was, it was in, incredible. Um, you know, but if, if I learned anything, it was um, – I woke a giant in beating Kieran, and that was I, – I did that twice in my career, and you, you think I would have learnt from the first, but I didn't. So, um, but, yeah, it was incredible to, you know, thinking thinking back on it now. But you go on to medal in Canada at those Com Games, and, and then in the same year at World Champs in Rome, you get struck down with food poisoning. Um, as I said, you know, always something's finding you, seems how um, going through your – 
your career here, but before the race, you get struck down with food poisoning. And by this time, mate, surely you're thinking someone's got a voodoo doll and they're just sticking needles in you. But, you know, again, true to your character, you, you went on, still competed and came away with a silver medal uh, and did a great PB. Now, what's your memory of that meet? And, and how did you sum it up? Like, talk to me about your, I guess, thought process going into it, you know, when you're violently ill, but you, you still got to go out and compete. Oh, man, was I ill. That was real bad. So we've obviously come off Commonwealth Games, um, which, you know, was uh, – I did my best time in, in the 1500. Um, I was a little bit slow in the 400, so I got a, a bronze in the 400 behind Kieran and Daniel Loder and then a silver in the 1500 behind Kieran. Kieran had um, – in that 1500 race, it was incredible. He broke the 800 world record on the way to breaking the world record in the 1500. Oh, wow. It was just – the crowd was nuts. It wasn't a massive venue, but it was just incredible. And, and those games obviously served as a qualifier for the world. And so we went from uh, Victoria, Canada to Seattle for a small training camp and then a flight to, to Rome. And we were in Rome pretty early. And that whole experience was, was surreal. Like here I am doing something that I love and it's taken me halfway around the world. And uh, it, was, it was great. And, and the meet was you know, phenomenal, it was dominated by the Chinese women. You know, there was controversy um, all around, mm. you know, the women's trying to freestyle, Francisca Van Almsic, the defending Olympic champion didn't qualify for the final and then there were stories that they paid a teammate off to drop out of the final and she did and then she ends up winning. So mm. there's all this stuff happening and then, you know, the 1500 heat comes along and Kieran and I um, qualify four and five. It's late in the day and we go back to the hotel and I eat in a hotel dining room, not in the room assigned for us and yeah i still to this day blame a tom- some tomato that i had in um my meal and within a couple of hours i was i was sick as a dog i couldn't eat anything i couldn't hold any fluids down i was getting injections from the doctor um and it was only even when we had our team meeting um to go to the finals on the last night they still weren't necessarily going to let me swim um, and in the end, um, I went to the pool to warm up and uh, I just remember sitting on the side of the pool, just dangling my legs in, in the water, mm. uh, just bawling my eyes out because here I was at the World Championships and I was feeling like death. And, yeah. you know, Dennis was like, Don Talbot had told Dennis that it was my decision. And so I decided that I wanted to swim it. Mm. Um, I don't think I really warmed up at all. And. I remember being in a marshalling area and Kieran literally had to pick me up and push me out the door to, to go behind the blocks. And somehow <laughs> I did my best time and I never, ever went quicker than that time. Kieran had gotten sick as well. He had a really bad cold um, after he'd like smashed that 400 freestyle world record mm. um, a couple of days before. And yeah, I <clears throat> hand on the wall second and yeah, I, I had to get basically carried out of the pool. They weren't going to let me do the medal presentation. Yeah, it was it was a really, really weird time. Mate, for a lot of people out there and a lot of the kids especially who are, you know, in, involved in racing and they're in the pool and, they're you know, they're not feeling well, give us a little snapshot into, like, what are you going through in your mind during that race knowing how sick you are? Did you ever have thoughts of, like, oh, mate, if I get to the end, I'm going to pull up stumps here, like, this is it? Or was it always just... I'm going to go until I just basically collapse and can't go anymore. 
you know, it sounds stupid, but it was very much it felt like it very much an out of body experience. Mm. Um, I, I, I was just on autopilot. Um, and I think because I was feeling so unwell that that sort of detracted from um, the, the pain that I was feeling swimming, like swimming pain. I was just dealing with like stomach pain and, but I knew, like I knew that this was I, like, I was glued to the TV watching the 1991 Worlds in Perth. Um, and I, I still remember like saying to myself, Daniel, you're doing, you, you're doing what you're watching and what you wanted so bad, badly to do. Like I can remember that race between Kieran and York Hoffman in 91, like it was yesterday, still today. Mm. Um, and he, and in my in my head, I'm saying, Daniel, you're living out this now. You're you're doing it. Um, and and that gets back to that, you know, the conversation Dennis had with me prior to the trials. Was like, you've done the work. You just need to back yourself and believe in the work that you had done. Um, and I've, I, 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 yeah, like I said, just switched onto autopilot and and let the let the swimming happen. But it was it was horrible. Everything about that 36 hour period was horrible. Well, mate, thankfully for you, 1996, you have a much better run of health and, and injury-wise leading into Atlanta uh, at Olymp- Olympics. And you go on to ha- have perhaps, you know, your best international competition of your career. You, you walk away with a bronze in the two and the four and a silver in the 1500. And, you know, with that, you walked away with more medals than anyone else in the Australian team, which given the names on that team was, was a huge achievement for you. What you know, went so right for you and that preparation for you to perform as you did and especially given the very distances you, you were successful at with the two, the four and the 15, was the training program in, in that lead up the exact same or had it been switched up slightly? No, so um, this, is, this is where my career kind of got a little bit interesting in the sense that I come back and, you know, I had the success that I had in 94 you know, breaking three, uh, 15 minutes three times in, in that year under Dennis and I decided I would move to Melbourne and, and train under under Bill Nelson who had left the AIS to take up the head coach's role at, at Melbourne Vic Centre. Mm-hmm. And uh, listen, I still don't – I do know why, but I it took me a while to figure out why I went through that move. I mean, Bill – was an in, incredible coach. He, he became very much like a, a father figure to me. Um, but the, the training was very different to, to Dennis's. It was a lot more mileage. It was less, less sort of um, in, intensity. Um, you know, we had the typical sort of Bob Trephine, Mr. Carew type sets, but Bill was heavily influenced by his, his mentor was Bill Sweetman. Mm-hmm. So there was, you know, there was a lot of grinding out the, the kilometers. Yep. Um, so going into Atlanta, I had clearly done a lot of work. I mean, I had once and one session about six weeks before, which I, I reckon I never recovered from. Um, but I, I just had the, the work. I'd, I'd done the work, and so I was able to stand up on, on the blocks. But the biggest difference was I'd, I'd lost the mental. I'd lost the mental edge. I the the, the doubt in my mind and the lack of confidence, um, and it showed. Like I, I may have got the medals, but the times and performances were, were woeful, mm. were absolutely woeful. And you know, 
I, I don't harp back on it a lot these days, but if I had have, you know, swum to to my best, um, I probably would have had different medals and enjoyed it more, but um, I didn't. But I'm, I'm nowadays, you know, a long time removed, I'm extremely grateful and proud of, of what I achieved. Mate, it's around this time that a young man named Grant Hackett, who, who we just mentioned before, really comes onto the scene um, through like 96, 97, 98, and especially 98, the world champs in Perth. And, you know, you'd already been battling Kieran Perkins for, for much of your career, it seems, and, and the battles are about to get even tougher with the emergence of Grant. Talk to me about the rivalry with, with both Grant and Kieran. And I know perhaps, you know, away from the competition pool, you guys are, are all good. So I'm not saying rivalry in a, in a negative way, but obviously, you know, when they say take your marks, mate, all bets are off. And, and with all due respect to everyone around you, you're gunning for people, you know, next to you. Talk to me about that rivalry with, with those boys. Um, uh, see, I, I, I never... Yeah, I guess it was a rivalry. I mean, real, realistically, they were so much better than me. It wasn't really a rivalry, yeah. but it was. Like, yeah. I, I, I get that component. Like, I was a part of the puzzle that made for incredible viewing mm. because, you know, and I must admit during this COVID-19 thing, I have, like, been on YouTube a lot <laughs> looking at, like, looking at past races, not so much mine, but other other races. I, I watched one on the weekend, um, you know, uh, in breaking the 400 freestyle world record at the Olympic trials in Sydney 2000. Yeah, yeah. But I, sorry, I digress. Um, <laughs> so it was incredible being a part of, particularly the Kieran stuff was was just so so incredible to have been a part of because you know I was acutely aware of the history and the tradition of the 1500 meters in particular um, in this country. You know, dating back to to to. Bull, Boy Charlton, obviously, um, you know, Steve Holland, um, and then there's a whole list of names, obviously. But, you know, Kieran, and I was actually in the heat back in 1989 when Glenn Houseman unofficially broke the world record. I still had about 150 metres to go, but I was in the same pool mm. in, at the very same time that that happened. And so I sort of witnessed all of that and was just enamoured with, with – him and the event and you know i only ended up doing the 1500 because my coach david james at the time was like buddy you got nothing left <laughs> this is your last hope of ever making a team and so to go through that um was was incredible I and mean, it's something i'm very proud of and still can't believe that it happened but it was it was pretty intense because you know karen was an intense swimmer mm. um and he was really, really smart and connecting with him, um, there was always a um, like a, a line, like at the pool, it was business and then away from the pool, it wasn't business, but it wasn't easy going. Yeah, like yeah. I, I, was in, I guess it was more I was intimidated, I was in awe, um, I looked up to him. So uh, it, it was a, you know, it was an interesting dynamic, but... Yeah. We both obviously love our country very much. I'm very proud to be a part of, of the Dolphins and, and the history. So from that component, it was really cool. Whereas with Grant and I, I always saw myself as a bit of a big brother. Like when I was training in 94 before Commonwealth Games, I was mainly training with his brother, Craig. But when I started doing more distance work, I'd always get this little kid thrown in with me to keep me company. And it was Grant because Grant was a serious troublemaker 
um, and Dennis would always, or, or Raylene would throw him in to keep me company because he was being a little smart-ass more than likely. <laughs> yep. And so I had him keeping me company, and I always joke about it. When I went back to Dennis after 96, I went, when I left, I was lapping Grant, and when I came back, he was lapping me. Mm. So it was almost full circle. But uh, for me, uh, you know, Grant and I were always business in the pool, but away from the pool, it was the banter was a lot more, you know, joking. And, and I guess a lot of that had to do with, you know, the group that we were training with. Um, and I was very much the elder statesman. We had, you know, Gian Rooney was there at that point. Michael Klim had come to train with Dennis. Kai Hurst was there. There was Stephen Penfold, Lee McBean, Daniel Lysad. You know, these, these Gold Coast crew, which just made it a lot of fun. And I, I sort of was like the big brother and, um, I loved I loved that and I, I loved that swimming up and down against Grant and you know trying to keep him honest, um, trying to swallow a bit of pride at the same time for myself. So it was you know the rivalries to me they weren't so much rivalries because like I said they were so much better than me. But um, I, I like to think that I kept them honest and on their toes and I was very fortunate to be a part of something very special. Mate, 1998, you, you change programs again, head back to the Gold Coast to train with super coach Dennis Cottrell and, and somewhat of a super squad at the time. And as I said, you had yourself and Gian and, and Grant and, you know, you just rattled off a, a lot of names there. And I mentioned earlier that I was, I was super interested in, in terms of, you know, when you have a, a squad like that together, just the competitive juices flowing in training. And obviously it's all banter and a bit of fun, but there's no doubt that, you know, if, if, if you want to be the best and you're pushing yourself, what was it like? You know, give us a snapshot in terms of the training environment. No doubt you guys had a, a lot of fun and a laugh along the way, I don't doubt. But, you know, on those big sets, what, what was that like, you know, pushing each other? Yeah, it was really interesting because everyone had, um, you know, their, their, special, their specialty. So, for example, when we did kick sets, Kai Hurst and Gian Rooney were miles ahead of me. Um, and, and Grant would always be nipping at everyone's heels. When we did a pool set, same thing, Kai, um, Stephen Panfold, and then Grant would be there too. And then when you put it all together, Grant was like so far ahead mm. um, rel relative to all of us. But we would sort of like um, try to take turns in, in pushing him. So, you know, Dennis used to love to set sets of, of one, you know, 150s. Um, and I was the type of person I loved the challenge of like trying to do as many on 135 as I could. So whilst I was never going as fast as Grant, I wanted to try keep him honest to to see what he could keep doing. You know, pushing him as as fast as he possibly could go for the duration of the set. Um, we'd quite often do 30-50s dive start on one minute 30, which to this day is still my least favourite set and <laughs> most painful set that I've ever done. The lactic acid accumulation was horrible, but. Yeah. You know, the same thing. We quite often have three or four across the pool, and um, you know, I don't, I don't think it was intentional. We never spoke about it, but I saw a lot of my, my, my role was to try to help Grant be the best in the world yeah. because I knew that wasn't my turn anymore. I'd, that ship had well and truly sailed. But he was helping me. Like what I wanted was to get that spot on the relay for Sydney two thousand, and then. You know, after surgeries, after Sydney 2000, you know, was just trying to get back on the team. And so I, I, I just tried to continue to play a part. But I, I enjoyed, you know, pushing him where I could. But he just had that next level, that, that gear that I didn't have. You know, 
if he didn't break 50 for 100, I don't know if he did, but, you know, he, he damn well got close. Um, but the stuff that he could, you know, tune out in training was unbelievable. I heard him talking, uh, he did the podcast the other day with um, with Brett Hawke, former Australian uh, team member as well. And, yeah, he, he talks a lot about, you know, training terms and, and how, in, you know, he wanted to always be the best in training and push himself and um, how, you know, at times it might not have been easy training around him because he'd, he'd hold people accountable and he'd be pushing them and pushing them. Is, did you see that as well? Oh, 100%. Like... You talked a little bit before about, you know, we were talking the Last Dance documentary and Michael mm. Michael Jordan, and whilst, you know, Grant wasn't like that, Grant would get very angry at himself, you know, the amount of times that uh, he would throw his <laughs> he'd throw his water bottle um, and every now and again it would connect with Dennis's coffee mug and you know, <laughs> there'd be ceramic glass flying everywhere and bottles and you know, he would punch the wall, which would always scare us because I was always worried he was going to break his hand or yeah. his wrist or something. You know, he, he was his harshest critic. Um, you know, his toughest competitor was was himself. And, you know, I he, he was only ever a smart-ass to me, which I loved. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he was really good at, you know, riding the younger guys to you know, because they were they was they were young in terms of their maturity to be consistent in the pool. Yeah. Like they would have one good session every three days, and he would ride them and get on them so that they would be consistently good all the time. Mm. So I think there was a big difference in the terms of you know, um, I don't looking back and I don't think he was being hard on them or giving them a hard time. He was just trying to teach them lessons that were valuable in the pool but as you come to realize in life they were very valuable life lessons as well yeah, absolutely and mate, you touched on just there before the the sydney 2000 olympics and you wanted to you know get a spot on that relay and mate it was widely regarded as, as the best games ever and the road to sydney was not an easy one for you as you mentioned you know with with shoulder surgery um you still made the team though and you still you know went on to be a part of the four by two relay especially in the heats and and the boys went on to win in the final and you finished your last olympics with a gold medal now after the surgery and the pain you know it must have been a nice feeling to to sort of get to the point that you wanted to get to and and get there on your own terms yeah um sydney was interesting because you know atlanta had been such a full-on experience I swam in four events. I had one night off. Um, and here I go to, to the Sydney Games. Disruptive preparation from, you know, April 1999 to, to the Games itself. Uh, so I went in there knowing that I was going to have an have to have an absolute blinder of a swim to even make that finals team because I knew that um, – I knew that Ian was obviously going to be rested for the final and Michael had earned, had earned that right to be rested for the final too because he had qualified second in the trials even though he didn't swim it at the games. Um, Todd Pearson and Bill Kirby were swimming lights out in the training camp in Melbourne. Grant and I were not, <laughs> you know, I, you know, Grant was docu well documented that, that, you know, Grant was, was not healthy um, from a, I think it was glandular fever in the end. Um, but he, he was just flat. Right. And mm. so the two of us were, were not in, in 
great shape relative to the others. And so, you know, I chose to walk in the opening ceremony because I didn't do it in 96. You know, we got back to the village quite late. I didn't swim till day five, so, like, I had plenty of time. And then the heroics of day one happened. You get Ian swimming the 400 free breaking the world record. You have that, the guys winning the four by one three mm-hmm. star, which to this day, I'm like, that blew my taper well and truly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but at the end of the day, I swam last in the heat. We were so far ahead. And to me, it was just, it ended up being a time trial. And uh, I got out of the pool and my family never got to go to 96. So I saw them, they were quite front center and I waited and I thought that was, you know, that's it. I'm not going to get another swim. And, and I was right. You know, I was a good point three behind. Um, can't even remember who it was, uh, if it was Bill or, or Todd. But, you know, Grant and I both both missed out. And, you know, those boys went on and, I mean, what they smashed the world record. They won by, what, 15 metres maybe? Yeah, yeah. Like it was incredible. And, um, you know, I'll I never forget, um, I went to the warm-down pool after the medal presentation and Ian – got me to stand up on um, like one of the benches out at the warm-up pool at, at Homebush and he like sort of fake pretended to give me, make do a medal presentation, which I thought was was really cool. But I, I was I, I still to this day feeling different about that medal, if I'm perfectly honest with you. Mate, some of the memories, you know, of those games, and you mentioned it there, obviously, Thorpe in the, in the 400, uh, the boys with the 4 by one but also, you know, away from the pool, Kathy Freeman, you know, with the country on her shoulders, winning her 400. Was there any, you know, standout moments, I guess, even it's just away from the pool that, you know, you still think about to today? Yeah, so basketball tragic. So I really, um, I loved any... Any games that featured the Boomers or the Opals, um, obviously the Dream Team, well, version two, you know, Vince Carter was on that team and, again, being a diehard basketball tragic and he won the slam dunk competition that year and I was like, yes, this is awesome. So I really remember that. Um, I unfortunately couldn't get to Bondi for the beach volleyball final between with um, Kerry Potas and Natalie Cook, but I, I really remember that. But the one thing that sticks with me and will haunt me for the rest of my life um, from a sporting context was Jane Savile, the race walker, yeah. being disqualified entering the tunnel in first place. Yeah, heartbreaking. Um, absolutely heartbreaking. Um, and... I guess because of a line of work that I do now, we, you know, we, we, we're starting to look at what we can do to, to, to celebrate 20 years. Um, and so I, you know, I've seen, re seen that footage and, and yeah, still to this, to this day, it just, it breaks my heart. And, um, it, but that's what the Olympics is about. Right. Mm. Um, so it makes it, makes it so special. It's, it's that one what you've got to be ready on that that one day in four years absolutely i mean well you'd know a lot more than myself but you know definitely in sports in general with with the with the high spots and and those massive moments that we get to see um the beauty of sport is that there are those you know down spots and and those heartbreaking moments which we saw and i i don't think anybody can probably watch that that image back and and not go oh my like just and just feel for her because 
um, you know, as you would know, and a lot of athletes know, that's that moment of her heartbreaking. That's not just that race. That's you know, four years of of training <laughs> leading up to that moment, and and being so close. Um, I could only imagine what she was going through at the time. Well, I remember four years later when she got the bronze in, in Athens, and I I remember bawling my eyes out. Mm. Um, and so I can't imagine, you know, what she must have must have been going through, but. You know, the and for me, um, you know, I came back from the '96 Olympics, and I was I was deeply affected by my performances or my perceived lack of performances, and and that's the way I viewed them, yeah. and that's the way I felt other people viewed them as well. And it, you know, it took me a very long time to sort of come around to realize that I should be proud of, of what I achieved because I, for, for a long time I felt as though I'd failed. And so I feel that's probably why something like a Jane Savile moment really resonated with me um, because, um, like I said, you in a lot of cases you only get one opportunity that's why my mind boggles at what Michael Phelps was able to achieve mm. from 2000 to 2016. And you know what? That guy could probably start training today. And if Tokyo <laughs> Olympics are being held in 21, I don't know if you asked Bob that question, but he'd probably still get ready and I, get I, close to winning. That no, thing. I didn't ask him because I, I feel like even if he was thinking that, he, I don't think he was going to divulge that scoop on off the block swimming podcast. So I thought I'd stay away. But similar to you, I, I did think that like he, he's in phenomenal shape and he is that type of freakish athlete that if he wanted to, 100%, I, I agree with you. I think he could. Wouldn't that be incredible? Oh, that'd be incredible. Yeah, absolutely, mate. I yeah, <laughs> I think um, that would just add another layer to, to Tokyo. Absolutely. Mm. Now, you you know decide to pull up stumps on your career. I think it was two thousand and two. Um, was that an easy decision for you to make? I mean, you know, I know you were just about, I think, finished studying at uni, doing sports marketing. Was it just time for you and, and the next chapter? And was it tough to say goodbye to a, a sport that you loved? No, the, the decision was made for me. Um, you know, I'd had – by that point, I'd had four shoulder reconstructions. I'd started losing um, feeling in my mouth and down my arm. And so I just had to start thinking about my, my long-term health. And the reality was, and I knew this post-Atlanta, was I was never going to become an Olympic or world champion. You know, I couldn't even be a state champion or a district champion on the Gold Coast. You know, I, I, was, I, I wasn't going to be beating Grand in anything. So, um, for me, it, it, the call was made. You know, in consultation with my surgeon and my physio, and it, it was a sense of relief at the end of the day because, as you mentioned, I'd almost completed. I had one more year to go on my degree. Um, you know, I was getting on late twenties, which at that point in time was was considered you know old um all things considered so you know i was at peace of mind with with the decision and like i said relieved mate throughout a lot of swimmers careers you know they have things that they may struggle with away from the pool or maybe even in the pool itself throughout your career and and even in terms in your life were there things that you found difficult to handle and and work through you know, I think uh, hindsight is a wonderful thing. Um, and I knew post-2016 
post-1996 that um, my feeling towards my results um, was a part of was a part of a bigger picture. Um, you know, I had you know serious depression, um, pretty bad eating disorders, um, and you know it wasn't until I came out as gay, um, you know, to myself in two thousand and five, that I realised that you know maybe a part of what I was feeling and not being able to be proud and savour what I had achieved was mm. I wasn't aware of my true identity. Mm. Um, and like I said, hindsight is is a wonderful thing, but I think a lot of that attributes to the lack of confidence that I had in myself and my ability was because I would stand up on a block and I was like, you know, who, who you know, who, without getting too heavy, who are you? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mate, talk to me about, obviously, you mentioned there with, with coming out. Have, have you had any athletes speak to you, um, you know, privately about their own struggles? And I'm not, not saying we have to talk about it, name names or anything like that. But have you had people come to you? Obviously, it's such a, a powerful thing, you know, when you did come out and you put it out there. And I know you mentioned in a few articles that you wanted to, you know, inspire people to feel like they weren't alone. Have you had people come to you and, and talk to you about what they're going through? Yeah, so when um, I guess it's, there's two. So, so I came out um, to my family and friends, you know, five years prior to sort of, or four and a half years to sort of going public about it. And and when I did go public about it, I did it on my own terms because I was getting um, heavily um, hassled by um, some publications who were going to out me, um, and thought I so I thought I'm going to take this in my own hands wow. and. And when, I, and when I did come out, um, part of the condition with Fairfax newspapers was um, I'll do an editorial piece in my own words and I want to provide an email for people to be able to contact me if, if they needed any, anything. Mm -hmm. And so I, there were a number um, of athletes who, um, who did contact me and shared their stories. And, and that's all it was at the end of the day was it's sharing experiences and, and telling stories. But because at the end of the day, it's such a personal thing yeah. um, and quite complicated. All I could do was tell them about my experience and, and they could determine how they moved on with their life with that little bit of insight. But, um, you know, I, if I, I have a lot of regrets in my life and, and one of them was, was struggling to come to terms and being ashamed and embarrassed of, of coming out. Cause I know for a fact I've worked in sport my whole life. Mm. Um, not, I have not, re not received one negative comment, um, from anyone anywhere that I've worked and for me, that was one of my biggest fears was not being accepted by the sports community and nothing could be further from the truth. And, you know, I'm upset at myself that I thought it would be different. Well, mate, I think two things just from what you said. Number one, how disgusting that, you know, a, a media publication would basically force your hand and say, if you're not going to do it, we're going to do it. And even basically, even I know what you did was brilliant in terms of, the story you put behind but and letting people get in contact with you but even the fact that you know that was a, a condition in the in the terms that you had to do a thing was 
is disgusting and I, I you know I, I apologize um, to you for that but ultimately made I just want to say you know congratulations and thank you for what you're doing in that area because I know from a coaching perspective you know there are a lot of swimmers that are going through a lot of things and you know so many of them probably wouldn't want to talk to their parents and and I've had a couple of athletes you know in my career come and talk to me that they didn't ever want to tell their parents because they knew you know that that it probably wasn't going to go the way they wanted to or you know different people you know I guess think about it differently but uh, ultimately as you said everyone's very supportive and and I think you know the work you're doing in that and the continued work you're doing that is is tremendous mate so congratulations thank you for that. Oh, no, thank you. And, um, you know, I'm one of the lucky ones. You know, I'm growing up in an environment where um, it's it's becoming more and more accepted. You know, the outcome uh, for marriage equality was massive. But, you know, that's one of the positive things about these future generations is that, that they're seeing that, um, you know, people are made up in all different ways. Mm. Um, and so it's it's that's a good thing. As you said, mate, like no, no one's you know talking to or treating you any differently, and um, I, I I see the same thing on pool deck when when you know swimmers do you know uh, are aware of, of you know whose whose um, sexuality is out there, and and they're treated no differently. You know, they get the same stick from the boys and the girls. They get the same banter. It, you know, and it ultimately it sort of takes the the weight of the the world off their shoulders, and and they feel as if they can just be themselves. Yeah, and you know, you know, healthy mind, um, ha- happy life, and you know, you you perform better when you, you are both of those things, yeah. um, which I think is is really really important. Absolutely. Now, mate, listen, I, I want to get the crystal ball out for a second. I did this with Gian Rooney a year ago, and since the, the Olympics have been pushed back, I feel like you know you're the perfect person to to help me go through that crystal ball one more time. And Tokyo Olympics 2021. Um, given what we saw in South Korea uh, a year or so ago, you know, as a guide, um, I'm going to give you that crystal ball. It's only a cheap one, so you know, try not to break it because yeah. it, it will it will break. Um, mate, I'm going to throw some scenarios at you, and I just want you to, you know, give me your thoughts on on how you think this will play out. There's only three, so it won't take long. So, first one is the women's 400 freestyle uh, and we we saw at the world champs obviously Katie Ledecky wasn't at her best and Ariane took advantage of that and and you know to her credit you know put on a, a wonderful performance when they dive in in Tokyo how do you see that playing out it's going to be a fast race um you see you see I'm old school in the sense of I don't like to <laughs> Predict. Yeah. I don't like to talk medals because um, I feel that it's unhealthy. Yeah. Um, I feel it puts added pressure and expectation where it's not needed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm kind of a fun police, um, but I would like to see the similar result as what happened in Korea. <laughs> okay. I, I like the way you, you politic your way around that. Well done. Mate, now listen, I obviously, you know, given your, your answer to that one, the next one was the men's 100 <laughs> freestyle with Caleb Dresser and Kyle Chalmers. Uh, are you, I'll, I'll take it this way. Would you prefer to see a result from 2016 at uh, Rio or would you prefer to see a result from last year at the World Champs? Oh, obviously, I prefer to see a result from 2016. Mm. Um 
Kyle Chalmers, his growth and his development as a person in the last four years has been incredible. Um, I had the privilege of being the Australian um, team mentor for the World Junior Championships that were in Singapore in 2015, Mm -hmm. um, which was a phenomenal team when you look back at it. Um, You know, Kyle was obviously the standout. Um, Clyde Lewis was on that team. Um, Jack Cartwright was on that team. Matt Wilson was on that team. Um, Tamsin Cook was on that team. Ariane Titmus was on that team. It was a phenomenal team. But Kyle was the guy who everyone looked up to. He'd been to Kazan as a member of the senior team and to see how much he has matured, which is what you expect of someone. But when you're maturing as an Olympic gold medalist at, what, 17 years of age and then in the public spotlight, the way that he's done it, hats off to him. I don't care where he comes. That, that guy's an absolute legend. I think he's incredible. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think something that I think we can all get excited about, you know, and, and I sort of come across those questions because of the names that I think we're getting back to that stage in our sport that, uh, you know, from the era that you were a part of, as I said, you know, with all those iconic names to us that we sat at home as kids getting to watch and getting to, to comp- you know, see compete. We're starting to get that, as I said, you know, Kyle versus Caleb Dressel versus Nathan Adrian and, and the names, you know, it's it's starting to stack up in terms of when you think about those mouth-watering finals, I guess more the reason why it's becoming a conversation is who do you think will get it? Because, you know, those names are all starting to, as I said, stack up and it's becoming a lot more star-studded. Yeah, and, you know, it's such a cluttered market out there right now. People have so many choices to take in what they love and so you know one of one of the things that i'm so grateful for was that i was a part of a team that created a lot of household names based off performances and the thing is is that in the sport of swimming in this country we have those names we have those personalities and we have performances but it's so cluttered cluttered now that people aren't quite seeing them Mm. like they did back in in my day and and the era previous um and i think you know what they're doing with the isl now and and that competition that racing that format is is only going to bring you know swimmers to lounge rooms that they may not have previously been to which i think is incredible um and you know i'm biased but i i just think that um they're just an amazing group of of young men and women um and you know they're doing an incredible job of con- continuing what is is a very strong tradition and legacy and, and that's not always easy absolutely man i could not agree more now i've got some more rapid fire questions for you um and, and just try and answer these as best as you can um your thoughts on the international swimming league you touched on it there what are your thoughts on it i think the isl has been a breath of fresh air for the sport 100 i fully got into it i mean i downloaded that seven plus app or whatever it was on and Mm -hmm. i was watching that stuff i was super jealous i don't think i've been jealous of swimming as much as i had watching that thing you know i totally got behind it i hope it continues i hope they don't try to expand it too big too soon and then flush out the quality of the product but, yeah, I, I give that um, five stars. <laughs> what about uh, who do you think at the moment is the best swimmer in the world? 
I think Adam Peaty is the best swimmer in the world at the moment, purely based on his dominance over a hundred meters is incredible. Um, and that would be closely followed by Caleb Dressel. Absolutely. And congratulations if uh, Adam is listening. I know his partner is pregnant. So <laughs> congratulations to, to Adam. And that's definitely, you know, having a, a young girl myself, man, that's definitely going to add some some pressure in terms of his, um, his you know, swimming career. So it'll um, be interesting to see how he progresses. Um, mate, if you could change anything or introduce one thing to our sport, what would it be? If I could change or introduce one thing to our sport, um, that is a really good question, and I think the ISL has got got it halfway. Mm. Um, the reason I'm struggling to answer is because I look at what um, the Big Bash has done, T yep. Twenty has done for cricket. Um, you know, tennis is flirting with it. Um, I feel like I don't want to dissolve the history and the tradition because that is what's so special about the sport. Mm -hmm. um, so you can't just make it quick, surefire event. And ISL are doing a great job of that, but it's maintaining its legacy through World Championships and Olympic Games. But it's, I guess it's, it's, it's somewhere in between, right? Um, yeah. But I, I, I don't know off the top of my head what that is. And if I did, I probably wouldn't share it with you. I'd keep it to myself. <laughs> I guess the, the main reason that sort of question comes to my mind and, and one of the reasons I, I started this podcast was I, I grew up in an era of, of watching swimming that, you know, was so fortunate to have the stands full, right? Like you'd, I remember going to even as late as 2007 to a duel in the pool meet for Australia versus America. And um, it was like going to a footy game, like you, you had your assigned seats and you had to make sure and it was just full. So I guess, you know, in, and obviously, as you said, trying to stick with, with the traditional way of, of the way we do things and, and making sure we don't just blow that away. But at the same time, creating, you know, the buzz around it so we do start to see you know the next time and i'm sure you would remember it you know when we had just trials the stands would be packed yeah and that gets back to that whole cluttered market right you can mm. you can you know ufc mma wasn't around back then was it so that's one yeah. thing you, you didn't you you know foxtel maybe was in its infancy um and so you weren't able to the things that you would typically would only be able to see on news coverage. You are now getting uh, getting through your your pay TV channel. Um, you know, back in my day, the A League wasn't around, so that's another domestic competition that you're up against. And so, you see the Olympics expanding with surfing, with skateboarding, with rock climbing, and so the emergence of X Games, both winter and summer. Mm. It is so much on offer for people to be able to view. You know, it's no surprise that people started to lose interest and or become less passionate because there was so much on offer. And so that is why, you know, the Olympics needs to continue to be relevant because it is, is, it is an iconic event, obviously, but the history and the tradition in it, um, we can't afford to lose that because you lose that then a lot of sports lose it along the way. And you, you think of your track and field, your, your swimming, your rowing, like they're the preeminent, uh, the Olympics is a preeminent event for those sports. Mm. 
So it's it's finding that balance, and that's definitely not going to be an easy thing as as things continue to evolve. What about the the best swimmer of all time in in your opinion? I, f- I feel like I already sort of know where you're going to head with this, but I'll, I'll ask you anyway. Oh, listen, I, it's it is it's a no brainer. It's yeah. it's Michael Phelps. Yeah. I mean the 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 guy ticks all the boxes in in terms of longevity, in terms of um, his ability to go from 100 to 400 across all strokes. You know, the fact that he qualified for the tournament back at the 2004 Olympic Games behind Aaron Pearsall but chose not to swim it in favour of a tournament free because he knew that that was going to be one of the events at the Olympic Games. Mm. Um, which it was, you know, speaks volumes of him. But yeah, you know, with without without a doubt, and I um, I still marvel at what he was 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 able was able to do. And um, you know, he's got Jason Lezak to to thank, and in in some aspects, mm. because that last leg of that relay in in Beijing was was phenomenal. That finish of a hundred fly. Uh, with Cavett was yeah, was incredible. Still don't if you really yeah. watch it back, you still don't believe he actually touched the wall first, but so close. You know, but to to think that you know you know as a fifteen year old to come fifth in the tournament fly at the Sydney Olympics, it it, it started there, and you, I mean you had the opportunity, and your listeners had the opportunity to to hear from Bob Bowman, and, and you you get it right, you mm. get why he was as successful as he was that, you know, I mean, that's as, as good a partnership as Jordan and Jackson, you know, yeah. it's, it was I- incredible, but it, it highlights that, you know, it really swimming is perceived as an individual sport, but um, it, it is very much a, a team output to be able to get those, to get those results and to have 5,000 gold medals is incredible. <laughs> Yeah, uh, you touch on. I don't want to go um, obviously to Michael Phelps heavy at the end of this because this is your show. But you you mentioned there the 2000 Olympics, and it's funny um, when people do listen to the Bob Bowman interview. He actually um, was was late for I think it was his heat swim. Like he 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 couldn't find his pass to get into the <laughs> pool, and he tried to use someone else's pass, so they stopped him, and he literally got to the pool like 40 minutes before his race. Um, so that's a funny little story. I mean, obviously people, you know, think of him as the greatest, but it, it's interesting to say, I mean, let's face it here. I think he was 15 at the time. So what 15 year old doesn't, you know, lose things or leave things behind. But, uh, it's funny to think that, you know, the greatest of all time, you know, once forgot his, his pass and tried to steal someone else's and couldn't use that to get in. And I think Bob had to go out and help him and, you know, no, no, he's okay. He's allowed to come in. So yeah, 40 minutes before his race. So. You know, I remember as a nine-year-old off to a um a meet, and uh, we were stuck in traffic, and I had to have a hot shower as as a warm up, and I I think I did my best time, but um, <laughs> you know, I, I totally get where Michael was at. But you know, one of my favourite memories from Sydney two thousand was I only swam in the relay, and um we had we had short course championships in Melbourne um a couple of like maybe four to six weeks after. The Sydney Olympics, and that was going to be my last meet because I knew that I was having a double double shoulder reconstruction. So Dennis kept me training during the games, and I remember doing a set of two hundreds, 
and Bob had Michael join me for that, that set of 200s. And I quite often, you know, think back at that, you know, because I was like, oh, wow, this kid's 15. He's, you know, he's made the final mm. at the Olympic Games. That's mm. that's incredible. But I did kick his ass in that set. So <laughs> I'm really I'm really proud of that. And, um, you know, Bob is one person that I've continued to, to keep in touch with um in in retirement when on trips to the u.s we would go and go and visit and just check in on the program and was always in awe of um of the attention to detail and and this is the thing right um you know i was very bad at skills you know my turns were were horrible and it was always um drilled into me you know dennis relentless even to the day i retired daniel stop breathing off the wall off the turn i'm like dennis i need oxygen <laughs> but um but you know and you as a coach you know you, you streamline don't breathe in into the wall all, all of that stuff right and that was the one thing that i remember picking up when i went to to so this was in north baltimore it would have been um uh after when Michael was coming back for Rio and um, the, the, the attention to detail was incredible. And I just remember saying to myself, like I was, I thought that I was really good in particular, but that was, that was next level. Mm. That really was next level. Bob never had to say anything to him. It just happened. And I, you know, I, I was thinking, you know, uh, I get why this guy is is twenty at that point twenty what twenty one gold medals maybe. Yeah, I think um, twenty eight by the end twenty eight medals altogether Olympic medals and twenty three were yeah gold. yeah so I reckon so maybe then he had you know whatever he won in Rio won three four gold in Rio five I don't know, <laughs> I don't know. we say it like it's but that was the thing that was the one thing that stood out to me was. He and I remember um, my partner was with me, and he was like, "What makes him so good, other than his, you know, phys- you know, physically, physiologically?" I said, "Look at look at when he tumble turns, comes up all, does those things. Everything was like down pat." Mm. And for me, that that speaks volumes, right? It's, Mate, you've done it. You've got me started now, and I, I'll I'll share one more story before we go. So I talked to you about the 2007 duel in the pool, and it's funny you talked about before that that you know his backstroke events because uh, at this event he was in the 200 backstroke, um, and and he was racing Pearsall and and a couple of the other Aussies, but obviously it was it was more just Pearsall and, and Phelps were out in front. Coming to the last turn, Pearsall was in front, and Phelps accelerated into his turn, turned pretty much on his hip. Ripped this fifteen water, um, fifteen meter underwater like you've never seen. Came out ahead of him, lifted his rate, <laughs> and and end up winning the two hundred. And I, I mentioned it to to Bob that obviously the times probably weren't reflective of you know the best time. So whether you know they were playing a bit of cat and mouse and there were games being played, but I'll never forget just being in awe of this guy in in non his pet not his pet event just ripping this underwater past the the world record holder and the and the person who is the best at that event in the world and and still knocking him off and I was just like well you can't beat that that's just the greatest you can't and you know that those I think it's important that you know young swimmers you know coaches even like those you know mainstays on national teams already is you can't um 
underestimate how important those little things and skills are, particularly in the sport of swimming, because that's what makes a difference, right? It's mm-hmm. it's the things you don't have to work any harder at. They're, they're, that's just attention to detail. You know, you don't have to do an extra training session. You don't have to lift a heavier weight. Um, it's just you just your mind has to switch on to do something different or to add a dolphin kick or to keep your head down. Um, and it's so simple in theory, but it's for the majority of us, it's impossible in practice. And, you know, not saying that Michael Phelps is perfect, but in terms from a swimming point of view, he's been as almost as perfect as you can get. He's bloody close to it, that's for sure. Uh, mate, I want to finish with, you know, some less serious questions. And, and these are probably more questions that will, you know, give us a little bit more of insight into into what you're like away from the world of swimming. So just rapid fire, whatever comes to your head, throw <laughs> it out there. So your favourite music or artist to listen to? <laughs> oh, this one's going to be an interesting one. So believe it or not, I'm a very cultured human being. Yeah. <laughs> and um, my um, my favourite artists are a Korean K-pop group called BTS. Okay. I am obsessed. Are they the ones that at all the uh, bloody music awards, as soon as they come on the screen, the, all the girls in the back of the, the uh, arena go crazy? That is them. That, that is, they are incredible. If you have, you know, put the language barrier aside, mm-hmm. if you want to see a performance, you they are incredible. And I hope I don't lose listeners for you after <laughs> saying that. But no, mate, they, listen, I, I think it's good to each to their own. Everyone likes different things. I mean, I could probably rattle oh. off some artists on here that people will just roll their eyes and go, why would you even listen to them? So... Everyone's into to different stuff. I I did see them at a couple of awards. They're definitely entertaining. That's for sure. Yeah, hundred percent. Mate, what about uh, books or movies? What are you into into most? Oh, listen. If a book can be <laughs> if a book can be made into a movie, um, um, I'd be much much appreciated with that. Um, so, you in, know, in I'm that often, then favorite movie? What's your favorite movie? Um, do you know that's a really tough to, tough question, but. One of the reasons I ended up doing a the degree that I did was because I loved the movie Jerry Maguire. Yep. Um, so I really love that movie. I love the movie Moneyball as well. I think analytics in sports is absolutely fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, so those two definitely. Um, and as for books, you know, my favourite book used to be um, It's Not About the Bike by Lance Armstrong, but following everything that happened with him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that is no longer my favorite. Well, it definitely wasn't before. about the bike, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, mate, uh, in terms of um, Moneyball, I think what's so exciting, or what's so sorry, interesting about that is is just people's um, reluctance for, for change, you know? Like, you see the old guys there sitting in the in the room like, oh, I like this guy. What do you like about him? Oh, he looks really good. He's got a really uh, attractive girlfriend. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I thought that was just fascinating. And, it, and it's probably, you know, fairly true in, in terms of sports today. And, and I guess you get to see it a lot in, in your job in terms of, you know, pushing the boundaries of, of, you know, into new frontiers, but also trying not to upset, um, you know, what's come before us? Yeah, I, I think that's – it's really fascinating. And, and for me, one of the – so I'm obviously I'm into all that stuff and 
college basketball and basketball in general is is one of my passions and so i'm always fascinated when the nba draft comes up and you see who gets drafted who doesn't and you you look at the analytics and you know the gms and they discuss why they chose that person over that person and and one of the things that i think back on in swimming is ariane titmus so ariane when i went to singapore in 2015 young girl training out of tasmania you know, she was very quiet. She was very timid. Um, she was she was relatively small at that point in time. And, you know, I looked at her swimmer and I thought, she's a, a, a nice swimmer. Mm. And then I remember doing the St. Peter's Western Club presentation night um, and she had not long moved up to Brisbane to train under, to train under Dean Boxall. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and I remember seeing her, I remember her vividly, and I, I remember mentioning her in my speech and saying, you know, the sacrifices people make. I did something similar like Ariane and her family had done when I was a kid. So to see her now compared to when I saw her in Singapore, like I'm not a coach for a reason and because I did not see that happening. Mm. But she obviously, she well and truly has this inner drive and – that is second to none. Like she is an absolute animal, like a really kind animal. Um, when it comes to what she's capable of doing in the in the pool, you see the stories about her and Dean, um, and I totally get it. You know, what is she now? Six foot one. So all of those things. And so if I was a general manager, so to speak, and I had to choose, and I'm looking, okay, there's this girl from Tasmania in 2015 at the World Junior Championships. I'm like, mm, no, I'm probably not going to take her. I'm going to yeah. take somewhere else, someone yeah. else. Like, the mind boggles. Yeah, because, and you look back and you would have missed the boat on that one. Yeah, 100%. Like, she was, you know, I just she was so polite. She was so quiet. She was a beautiful swimmer to watch. But I didn't see, like, you know, what I see now, who's still a beautiful, quiet swimmer who has this internal mongrel in her, um, and, and that's what I love. Mm. That's what I absolutely love. And that's the money ball situation in swimming, right? Another great one for that, mate, is draft day uh, with Kevin Costner. Have you seen that one? No, I haven't, well, but they, I'm writing it down. You write it down. Draft day, Kevin Costner. Um, it's uh, it's a, a baseball, I think it's baseball. But anyway, uh, a, def- a brilliant, brilliant movie. Now, I don't want to spend too much time talking oh, about I could talk about I could talk about this stuff nonstop. Like, <laughs> oh, we'll- I, go, I go to NBA draft.net every single day to see who's moved up, who's moved down, what's going on. Uh, we'll we'll oh, wait till we, uh, we, press, um, we press stop on the record and we'll, we'll keep chatting. Mate, um, in terms of your, your legacy on the sport of swimming, and it's obviously something you continue to do today with, with your work that you're doing now, but in terms of your legacy in the pool, you know, what are you most proud of that, that you left behind? And for me, you know, as a, as a fan on the outside, it's just that ability, as I said before, the resiliency to, to never give up and to never let anything, um, you know, hold them back. And no matter what was put in front of them, you always seem to find a way around it or over it. When you look back, you know, what, what's your lasting memories? Um, if I could sum it up, I think it would be nothing to do with results or anything athletic performance. It was that I was a good teammate. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I came to realise probably more was 
in, through my role as a general manager of the Swimmers Association, um, you know, in that role, it, it, it was there. It was varied, um, but what I've come to realise is that the time in the sport is very minuscule in terms of your time in life, and mm-hmm. so I would like to my legacy to to be that he was a good teammate and a good person. Um, for me, that's far more important than anything I achieve by my ability in the pool. I think that's an awesome way to to finish up there. I think it, it speaks volumes, um, you know, not just as, as you as a swimmer, but for you as a person. Um, and thank you very much. Now, mate, I'll, we'll wrap it up there. I think that's a brilliant way to finish it. Thank you very much for, for taking the time to come on the show. I know you've had a pretty busy day. So, mate, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure and an honour to have you on for a chat. Um, mate, you know, good luck with all the work you, you continue to do. And, and hopefully maybe somewhere down the track we, we get you on for another chat, definitely not to get the crystal ball back out because uh, I don't know where you'd have to try and pick anything, but we'll we get you on for another chat and, and see how we're going back then. But, mate, until then, thank you very much for coming on Off the Block Swing Podcast. Absolutely, Lana. Thank you for having me. Today's episode is proudly brought to you by Pro Swim Workouts. What an amazing week of interviews it has been. Massive thank you to all the stars who came on the show this week. I very much appreciate the opportunity to share your stories with all our listeners. And if you think that's where the big names in interviews end, you are very, very mistaken because next week we have three huge interviews coming your way with Aussie Paralympic legend, Mr. Brendan Hall, Clyde Lewis, and on Tuesday the 9th, we have Adelaide and Australian star of the pool, Mr. Travis Marnie. So do not take your ears and eyes away from off the blocks as the big stars continue to come your way. And also, don't forget to jump on Instagram and get amongst the fantastic Arena Back to Swimming giveaway with a prize up for grabs valued at $250. Until then, though, guys, have a great weekend. Please stay out of trouble. And it's bye for now.